Good morning. Couple of announcements. We'll go over them. Evening service is that on for today, or are we going to wait for a memo? Let's wait for a memo. He says if he feels up to it, he will. He just changes his mind. Okay. Okay. Right okay. No pressure. I just need to know before I go get the chicken. Absolutely. Usually a half an hour or so before I show okay. up. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll look forward to that. Uh, keep an eye on your on your phone. So uh, we have the new TV installed. It seems to be paying out dividends. So we're happy about that. Uh, and again, uh, it's not a social gathering. It's to to be implied for uh, those who are maybe in a little distress or children having difficulties and that. So we'll be there. Do we have any any additions uh, to the bulletin this morning? Jess? Just a reminder that Thursday is a very important day for Mercy's medical um, considerations. That's when the doctors will meet the surgeon, the neurologist, the epilepsologist, and the hospital. And the that's this Thursday? Yes. So you don't necessarily have to be there. They're going to be working as a group and, and consulting with one another. To yeah, and then they'll bring their recommendations to us to the DM9 emergency. Yeah. Okay, so we have a reasonable expectation within the next couple of weeks, perhaps, that they will have some kind of uh, direction. I would be surprised if we don't hear from them within a week or so. Well, that's some good news then, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Well, I think we need to keep that in our prayers uh, as we go along, so anything else? Any word on Tom Roth? Terry, have you spoken to him? Okay. Nothing, no news is bad news then in this case. No news. And Ken, how is Della holding up? She just fighting every day. Well, we'll have to commit her to prayer continually for that as well. But uh, I don't know. If we got an appointment tomorrow with a heart doctor, so I don't know if we'll get any answers. Or her primary issue has been nerves, nerve issues in the neck and the shoulders. That's what I understand was in the past. Is there something new to this? You're saying there's an issue with the heart now, or has that always been? She hopes to get that vest off, but that's the constant part of that. I have a hard time ma imagining, you know, when we, when we think that we've got issues in that. the sensor gets off, and then the alarm goes off in the middle of the night when you, you get And all of this, you know, God can still be praised, well, right? This is supposed to depend on whether she can have a pacemaker. 
and you're going to meet with the doctors tomorrow about that with the pacemaker. Well, I hope to get an answer. I don't know. Okay. Keep Dell in our prayers that uh, she gets a good report from the doctors as well. Anyone else? There'd be nothing else. Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 16, page 1850 in your pew Bibles.
you stand with us as we begin our service with prayer. Elder Clayton, would you lead us once again? brother, please remain standing. Good morning. If you all would turn to page 30 in the red. <clears throat> we do not have our wonderful pianist here today, so if you will all make a joyful noise. <laughs>
284 in the brown. Do you have a reason, Pearson, for this? You like it. Okay, thank you. Just a quick note, I uh, was given, uh, Sheila said she had a really bad night, pain in the back, neck, and feet. Um, it's ongoing neuropathy, you know, we all get from time to time, so uh, I won't make any jokes about George being any of the source of it, but uh, nonetheless, let's, let's keep our brother and sister in prayer that uh, they have a recovery on this. Our scripture reading for this morning, taken from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, page 1628 in your pew Bible, and when you come to that, please stand with us. (coughs) 
Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in the, that town who kept coming to him and plea with, that, with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly, however, the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. If you all would turn with me again to 531 in the Brown.
that was one of George's favorite hymns. So maybe us singing that would encourage him at home. I didn't know he wasn't going to be here this morning, but uh, the hymn was chosen anyway. All right, our text is Luke 18. We're going through a series called The Gospel That Jesus Preached. And we looked at the last study at the account of the rich man and Lazarus, which I believe is a true story since it does not fit into the normal parable format, by which I mean names are given. The account is out of the realm of our experience. Talks about heaven. And then application is within the story itself. These are not usual characteristics of parables. A rich man who dressed himself in purple and fine linen lived in luxury every day, we read. While a lame beggar deposited at his gate suffered from illness and poverty and hunger and torment. Both died. Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's presence in paradise. The rich man was buried and ended up in hell. In torment, he wished for Lazarus to fetch just a drop of water to ease his torment in the flames. But a great chasm separated hell from paradise to prevent such interaction. That failing, he requested Lazarus to be sent back to earth from the dead to warn his brothers, so which were five of them, of the terrible torments that were in hell. And Abraham refused to do this with this reasoning, Abraham's words. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, that is, to the scriptures, they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Incidentally, with regard to our history, we have someone that rose from the dead. And his teachings still fall on deaf ears. People that will not repent and believe. We drew out a number of lessons. The present condition of people as they live in this world is not an indicator of their standing before God. I mean, the rich man, think about it, he had good things in his life, while Lazarus had bad, the scripture says. Yet it was Lazarus who was the child of God. Secondly, we learn that death fixes the destiny and the character of all men, rich and poor alike. Lazarus was a believer on earth. He is a believer still in glory. The rich man was a selfish User of men on earth, the same in hell. And thirdly, we learn that Jesus Christ, as revealed in the scripture, is the only saving message that men need. Miracles do not convince men to repent and believe. Well, today we come to Luke 18, to the story of the persistent widow. And as we do come, let us ask for the Lord's enablement. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and the power of your word. It reaches into our soul and brings understanding to 
the gospel as you taught it, but also it brings to us uh, conviction where we have failed you and where we certainly need to seek your forgiveness and where we can find only that salvation which is from God. So bless us with your presence by your Holy Spirit. Teach us this day from your book of books, the Word of God, which you say is the sword of the Spirit. O Holy Spirit, use your word as the sword that it is to strike down all of our hatred of God and all of our animosity and defiance and bring us to the foot of the cross with repentance. For your uh, blessing upon us we ask, but also for God's glory. Amen. Our text today is Luke chapter 18, and we want to talk about the persistent widow. In a rather unusual move, Luke tells us the meaning of the story before he tells the story. This is unusual. As we have witnessed so many times in this study, Jesus' usual method is to tell the story and then explain its meaning but Luke indicates up front, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Verse 1. I can only guess as to why Luke did this. And my guess is that the very warning which Luke issues, that it's praying without giving up, concerns an aspect of prayer which we are all too prone to do, and that is to give up. The subject of prayer is much on our lips. We have Bible studies on prayer. We talk to one another about prayer. We schedule a midweek prayer service in our congregation to pray corporately as a group. Prayer is something we know we need more of and we don't seem to have the time to do it. But prayer has this negative downside too, namely that after being engaged in prayer for a long time for some particular need or request, when the days and the months and perhaps years have passed by with still no answer, we question whether prayer does any good. And we will inevitably come to the conclusion that we should quit asking. I don't mean that we cease all praying, but rather that we just give up with regard to that one particular request which has been the burden of our hearts for a long, long time. We reason, well, I mean, if God were going to answer my prayer in the affirmative, he would have done it long, by, long ago from now. So I'm wasting my time by keep coming to him with the same petition. Obviously, his answer is no. 
So I might as well accept it and just get on with life. Now even here, there is wisdom, is there not? We know that the Bible teaches, and let me read it for you. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have or will have, what we ask of him. 1 John 5, verse 14, verse 15. We do not believe, as some teach, that believers have a blank check signed by God and that all we need to do is to fill in the amount and cash it in. God does not obligate himself like that to our wills. Our wills, even as redeemed people, are often muddled with desires of the flesh. And God is not going to grant us things which James says are filled with wrong motives. I'm reading James. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James 4 verse 3. So consequently, it isn't our will that determines what prayers God answers, but His will. This is why Jesus taught His disciples to pray to God, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I say again, that knowing this, as we pray, we conclude that if the answer to our prayer is not then forthcoming, it must mean that our request is not something God has willed for our lives. So let's just accept it. Let's just move on. Then there is what I call the magic three mentality. Meaning three strikes and you're out. I'm referring to the case of the Apostle Paul, who, as you know, suffered from some physical infirmity, which, from his viewpoint, was a deterrent in his ministry. In his own words, Paul tells us, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. And you know, God never did, he never did remove that thorn in Paul's flesh, whatever it was. People look at the number three and they make a fetish out of it. The magic number indicating how often we may approach God, but beyond which we are not to venture. We reason, well, if Paul prayed for something three times and God told him no, certainly we cannot break the pattern and pray for something more than three times. Let me tell you, that is not, <laughs> that's not an accurate way to handle the word of God. 
It's an interpretation based upon assumption and superstition. It's like reading in Acts chapter 6 that the church of Jerusalem chose seven men to serve as the first deacons. And that's what happened. And then making it mandatory that every church, if it's going to be a true church thereafter, must have at least seven deacons in order to be constituted a biblical church. That's not accurate. That is majoring in minors. The word of God is not to be handled that way. The Jerusalem church had 3,000 members. In my life, I've pastored churches that didn't have seven men in the church. Let alone seven deacons. People do the same with the number three when it comes to prayer. They make magic out of it. Well, ask God three times. After that, keep quiet. Go on with your life. But prayer, brethren, is personal. And answers to prayer are specific. In Paul's case, God came to him with a specific response to his threefold prayer. God told him flat out that he was not going to remove his thorn in the flesh. And that's why he stopped praying about it. To pray on in his case would have been presumptuous and rebellious. Because God said, you, you know, you can keep asking, but I'm not answering the request that you want. I'm not taking away your ailment. The thing that you're suffering from. There was nothing magical in the number three. God could have told him no after prayer number five or prayer number 50. The point to grasp is that you and I do not receive such revelations from God. The answers to our prayers come through God's providential workings. We pray Wednesday for someone who is deathly ill, and by Sunday they're feeling much better, and the doctors have revised their prognosis. Thus we know that God has answered our prayer. It has been cause and effect in operation. And if the person dies, we also know that God has answered our prayer. We consign ourselves to the fact that his will for that person was to take him home to be with God in glory. This does not destroy our faith. No, we rest in faith that the will of God has been disclosed to us and we can live with his will knowing that God always does what is right. So I believe that Luke opens this account giving the format for the story up front 
because he knew that in this matter of prayer, all of us bring the excess baggage of our own personal experience into this subject of persistent prayer. We already have our reasons, biblical or otherwise, as to why we are not persistent in our prayer life. And that brings us to the story. In a certain town, there was a godless judge who had no respect for God nor any concern for people. Verse 2. Verse 6 calls him an unjust judge. This is the worst kind of person you want to preside over your court case in your neighborhood. A judge who doesn't fear God and has no regard for the laws of morality and fairness and mercy, which God himself exhibits in his rule over others. A judge who has no concern for people will be arbitrary in his decisions, fanatical, irresponsible, oblivious to the facts, and may even be subject to accepting bribes to bend the verdict in a wrong direction. That men of this persuasion sometimes preside over court systems is true. Many judges are appointees. Having received their appointments, from men looking for a future favor from the law. This happened in Israel's day as well and was one of the contributing factors for God bringing judgment upon Israel. You can read about it in Isaiah 5, verse 23. They had corrupt judges and they put them in the places so that when they had court cases, they would get the judge to rule in their own favor. In this same town over which this judge presided, there was a widow woman who had been wronged greatly in some way. Her plea, grant me justice against my adversary, verse 3. The plea for justice from a judge who was known for being unjust, verse 6. You think about that, that's quite a feat. He's known as being unjust, but she's there pleading her case to be just. Did did she really think this man on the bench, who had no regard for God or for men, would care two hoots about her as a widow? Would a man who was so self-absorbed and preoccupied with his own pleasure, concerned himself over such a trivial matter. Trivial to him, that is. Well, she probably had no money to bribe him, and even if she did, she was not of that disposition. She wasn't there to bribe anybody. She was pleading for justice against an opposing adversary, it says. The Greek word adversary here is a compound word, anti-dikos. Anti, as you know, would be against. Dikos, dika, 
is the idea of justice or doing what is right. So anti-against doing what is just or fair. It's often used in courtroom scenes for one who is opposing what is just and right. Outside of the courtroom, an enemy, an opponent, Peter uses the term in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He describes Satan as being self-controlled and alert, he says to us. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And the word enemy is this word adversary. And you can be sure that since this label is used of Satan, the adversary who the adver, adversary rather who opposed this woman was also bent on distorting what was right and proper to get what he wanted from her. It is interesting to observe how often the Lord takes up the cases of widows. In Luke 21, he observed the widow who donated her last two copper coins to the temple treasury. And he used her as an example to his disciples of generosity. The resurrection of the son of the widow of Nain, Luke 7, is another incident. The law of Moses specified, do not take advantage of widows or orphans, if you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry, and my anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives will become widows, and your children will be fatherless. Ooh, you can read that for yourself. Exodus 22, verse 22 and following. Isaiah preached to his people, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widows. Isaiah 1 verse 7. And as a sign of true repentance, James tells us, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans, and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1, verse 27. Now, had the judge in our story been a God-fearing man, these scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, would have compelled him to take up the case of the widow who petitioned him. But as it was, verse 4 tells us, for some time he refused. So she's coming, she's making her plea, and he's just dismissing her. She obviously had a case, but he, <laughs> he just couldn't be bothered. Get out, of, get out of my court. Okay, but where was she to go? The court system of her day consisted of no appeals court, no change of venue. She could not go to another town to receive a hearing. No, she was stuck with this egotistical, careless, 
cruel man. And so she decided not to give up. Sunday morning, first day of the week, every week, week in, week out, she was on the steps of the courthouse demanding justice. The bailiff would now announce case number 452 in the matter of Hannah Goldstein versus Jacob Fenstebacher, the Honorable Judge Joseph Mikan presiding. Only Joseph Mikan was not so honorable. Case postponed till later. Case postponed till later. Next case, week in, week out, he would put her off, but undeterred. There she was every time the court opened a new session. Finally, the judge wised up. After ignoring her time and time again, she was becoming an irritant to him. In his own words, because this woman keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Verse 5. He was sick and tired of seeing her anguished face staring at him over his desk and listening to her plea for the umpteenth time. Here it goes again. I mean, he was spending more time putting her off than if he just went ahead, heard the case, and gave a ruling. So she finally got an answer to her plea. And she finally received justice. Now what is the lesson of this account? Well listen to what Jesus says. Verse 6. He says, listen to what the unjust judge says. Okay, so there's your there's your cue. Listen to what the unjust judge says. Notice the present tense here. Not said. Says. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And the point Jesus is making is that the lesson of the judge's actions lives on. It was a just judgment. It, is, it doesn't become corrupt with time. Now, of course, he said something, and that's in the past. But what he said also says something to us here and now in our day. It comes on through the pages of Holy Scripture. The first thing to observe is that in this parable... The lesson is to be found in the opposite of what the unjust judge was and what he said. Jesus applies this story to God the Father, who is neither godless in his personality nor heartless towards people. The lesson of this account 
is not that we can twist the arm of God or wear him down with incessant prayers to the place where he will grant our petitions just to get rid of us. God is not like the unjust judge in this regard. The lesson, verse 7. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? In other words, if a godless, selfish, egotistical, unjust judge finally gives a widow her request because of her persistent pleas, how much more will the just and holy Father vindicate his elect who always pray and do not give up? Verse 1. So you see, the lesson is in the contrast. God is not like the unjust judge in the story. He's the direct opposite. He hears the cry of his people and he answers. Okay. And when will God answer? After he's been badgered by us for weeks and weeks? After we've wearied him with our incessant knocking at the door of heaven through our prayers? When he gets fed up with all the prattle and just wants a little peace and quiet? Verse 7. Will he keep putting them off, his elect? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and, next word, quickly. Quickly. Different story altogether. The practical truths here are this. Number one, God's ears are attentive to the cries of his people, his elect, and he has promised them justice against their adversaries. Repeatedly, the scriptures demonstrate that the Christians in this world live in a hostile environment which often erupts in injustice on their behalf. Jesus was very honest when he taught his disciples, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and of course they did, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. John 15, verse 20 and 21. He also taught, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 11. 
Peter picks up on the same theme when he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and following. Now you see that the reoccurring theme here is being persecuted unjustly simply for being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ as though he were some poor example to follow and as though such allegiance to his teaching made us antichrist and common criminals. All of this isn't right, but it is part of the Christian experience. It's something Peter and Paul, James and John, and all of the disciples underwent in their lifetime. And this is not to say that it's easy to go through. It's not. Peter speaks of painful trial. He speaks of suffering, of being insulted. When we are in pain, either physical or emotional, we cry out like the widow in our text. And Jesus says that his elect cry out to God day and night. So think about that. All over the world, God's people are crying out. It may not be you in your house, but somebody else in their house, in the same church, or somebody not in the same church, but in another church somewhere that loves the Lord. When we are in pain, either physically or emotionally, we do cry. So that teaches us there's no time in a 24-hour period in which God's people around the globe are not being assaulted unjustly. I like re, uh, watching things on the History Channel. And I've watched a lot of videos on Hitler's Germany, his construction of the concentration camps, his persecution of the Jews, his deliberate slaughter of children, in front of the parents to bring heartache and pain to them. And on and on. Say, so, well, what's your point? My point is that the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps is attentive to the cries of his people, his elect. And he promises them justice against their adversaries because our enemies are God's enemies. 
There are people who cringe at the doctrine of election and they think it a monstrous thing to say that God has chosen a people out of the world upon whom he has set his redemptive love. But here it is the basis to being comforted by as his people when we pray. God does not promise to hear the prayers of every person on earth who prays, but to hear the cries of of his children alone. You know, <coughs> do you not know? People the world over pray. Everybody prays practically. <coughs> Excuse me. It isn't prayer itself which works wonders in people's lives. It is God and only if God responds to their pleas. So here he promises to respond to the prayers of his people. And this is a promise made to no other category of people. As I said, people the world over pray. They do. I'll bet you more pray than no pray. But they're praying to Buddha. They're praying to Mohammed. They're praying to this deity and that deity. Not the God of heaven. Secondly, we need to learn that God promises not only to hear, but to act in the business of granting us justice from our persecutors and to do it quickly. Verse 8. Okay, what does Jesus mean by quickly? While we want to believe everything our Lord is saying here, we may be tempted to question him on this, because often, from our vantage point now, vindication from God is not all that swift. We, in fact, may have to go through some deep waters for some time, and often it appears that God is going to let us drown in the tide of evil that's hurled against us. We look for a life raft, but there is none. So the key to understanding the word quickly in our text is the context which refers to the second advent of Christ. Do you see that there? He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, wait a minute. When the Son of Man comes... How's that connected with quickly? Well, the quick justice to which Jesus refers is locked into the second coming of Christ. And when we understand this, it will ease our minds as to why we don't always witness God's people being vindicated in this world, in the here and now. 
Peter had to face some skeptics in his day as well. And on this very theme, by the way. He speaks of scoffers who said, let me read it for you. Oh, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes along at the, as it was in the beginning of the creation. 1 Peter 3, verse 4. What are they saying? Well, they are saying, death ends it all. People live, people die. This has been going on since creation. No judgment from God has come. They just get away with it. Years have come, years have gone. No Christ has returned. Everything is status quo. Everything is stagnant. Everything's the same. Ooh, Peter heard that, but he didn't take it lying down. Peter answered, They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water and by these waters all the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. What's he referring to? Noah's flood. By the same word of God, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and follow. So he's saying, you guys have forgotten some things. You think everything has just been going status quo, no judgment from God. People are getting away with all kinds of wickedness and sin, and God can't or won't do anything about it. Well, I'll tell you one thing. You have forgotten about the great flood. God did do something about it. And he did say that he would never destroy the earth again by water. But what about fire? And Peter goes on to say, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In chapter 2, Peter mentions some additional temporal judgments which occurred in history. Verse 4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Verse 5, oh, don't you know about that? God kicked the disobedient angels out of heaven and confine them in the dungeons of hell. He speaks again, verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. Oh, yeah, that flood. That, yeah, I guess that was a judgment. Verse 6. 
He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He rescued Lot, a righteous man. And if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and following. Oh, I, I didn't know. I, I, I forgot about that, Peter. So things have not continued on unchanged since the day of creation, as the scoffers assert. The judgment of God has fallen on men again and again, and these temporal judgments are a picture of what is to come. It appears that a cataclysmic judgment which will set the record straight for God and his people is set for the second for the that period of time known as the day of the Lord that the New Testament talks about which is the second advent of Christ. Paul put it this way. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. And the quickness, the quickness of these changes in circumstances will occur in the blink of an eye. When people don't expect it. And then a third lesson here is this. Till Christ gets here, we, as Christ's disciples, should always pray and not give up. Verse 1. As the widow persistently pleaded with the unjust judge to help her. And he says, when Christ returns, will he find Literally, that kind of faith on the earth. That kind of faith. What kind of faith? Well, the kind of faith that doesn't give up. <laughs> that doesn't become weary in doing what's good. The faith that trusts in God through the bad times as well as the good times. This woman in our text kept getting put off and turned down by the unjust judge time and time again. She was dismissed. But she was not dissuaded from her quest. Next time the court was in session, there she was. She believed that, the, that that judge was the answer to her problems with her adversary. Do we believe that God, the righteous judge, is the answer to our adversary, the devil, and those lesser adversaries 
that he animates. Times are moving from bad to worse, brethren, with astonishing speed. This is no time to give up on God. This is a time for us to pray as we've never prayed before and to bombard the throne of heaven with our petitions for God's deliverance and sustaining grace. His ears are open to his people's prayers. But God wants us to pray believing. To put some tenacity in our prayers. Some grit. Some unflinching zeal. Enough of our whining and whimpering at the throne of God. How pitiful. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword. Not even death. Not life. Not angels. Not demons. All of that you can read in Romans chapter 8. The elect are safe in God. And this, brethren, is the gospel that Jesus preached. We're living in some rough times and it's going to go from bad to worse. I'm not going to fool you on that. But our faith needs to be strong and in God. I like history. So I watch the History Channel and I in particular, I'm fascinated by the evil time of Hitler's Germany. It's hard to watch. The evil things that man did to people are just inconceivable. I say, how could he do that to little babies? cut them open, dash their heads against brick walls in front of the parents. How could the SS, his special elect group of soldiers, be so calloused and do those kind of things? But they did. And no qualms about doing it. And over six million Jews were gassed in the gas chambers. But that's not all. Christians were gassed. The Poles were gassed. Another 12,000 people were gassed in the gas chambers. And they were drawn out and thrown in high piles dead people, dead, dead corpses outside the gas chambers. Then they dug a big pit so many feet away and they got bulldozers 
and they bulldozed all those dead corpses into the pits and then covered them over so no one would ever know. Ah, but Patton went in there with his armies and he made the people of the city come out and they shoveled those pits open and took pictures of all the dead corpses so that the world would understand, so that this would never happen again. He hated God's people. They had done nothing, nothing to him or to Germany. But they were expert, expert businessmen. They became wealthy through their entrepreneurial abilities. And they were despised for those things. And Hitler wanted their money and their wealth and their housing. The unrighteous think that they get away with these things, but God keeps the books. And just as we read, God will pay back trouble to those who have troubled you. Do you know Christ today? He is the Savior of sinners. He is the one that we are to run to. And he gives us courage and faith to live in this cursed world, this hateful world. So, well, that wouldn't happen in America. Oh, don't kid yourself. There are people in America that hate Christians. There are societies in America that are anti-God, anti-Christ. It's only a matter of time when they become the majority. Our Lord, we thank you for your grace. And your watch care over your people. Here's this woman. What a gutsy woman. Day in and day out. She goes to this man she knows is an unjust judge. He's not in her favor. He's against her. He's got a bias. He isn't changing his mind. Not readily anyway. He doesn't love her. He doesn't love God. He has no sense of justice whatsoever. He's just going to give her some sense of justice so he can dismiss her and get her out of his courtroom. Oh Lord, we are living in a world like that. I pray that you help us to see it and grant us the grace to trust in, in, in God's grace and to believe that there is a God who is watching all over all of these wickedness and inconsistencies of right that we see in our world today. And if we miss it all, he doesn't. He sees it all. And I pray that our hope and our 
understanding of blessing is found in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for our sin and who invites us, indeed commands us to come to the cross and be saved. Take away, Lord, our vengeance spirit, our black hearts, our hatred for certain races or people or whatever it is that comes our way. Grant us the grace of the Spirit of God. Grant us forgiveness. Grant us love for our brethren, love for the people of the world who are blinded by the God of this age who is the devil. They can't see. They can't see. And so they do based on their animal instincts. Lord, help us to give the gospel forth. We need to be sharing the gospel with people. There's a better way to live and certainly a safer way to die. We'll praise you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is in Trinity 618. 618 in Trinity. Hey, honey. Is Jerry going to be here tonight or no? We don't know yet. We'll make that call later and I'll send out I'll a text. I'll just cancel. Jared is tied up today, so we're just going to cancel evening service. Because guess what? He's the he's the teacher. We're going to sing 618 in Trinity. <clears throat> I love this little hymn. They would have this sung at uh, the Billy Graham Crusades uh, on occasion. Should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven home when Jesus is my portion? My constant is he his eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me his eyes on the
If you read the text on that hymn from Matthew, it says, a sparrow does not fall to the ground without the knowledge of without the knowledge of the Heavenly Father. We don't know uh, how extensively God cares for our lives. Do you, do you ever think that he's that detailed? A sparrow, what's that? That's an insignificant bird. There's thousands of them out there. But he says not one of them falls to the ground. The Heavenly Father isn't aware of that. Whatever you think you are in terms of a child of God or if you don't know God as Savior, you're still his child in the sense that he's the creator and he has the microscope on you. Every aspect of your life it's being watched and directed, cared for. It's wonderful to think about. Our Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for the word of God that is a blessing to us. There's nothing in this world that gives us comfort like this. The Holy Spirit uses the sword of the Spirit to bring about comfort to our hearts, but knowledge to us too. How do we learn about God? Well, not just from creation, but we learn about God from your book. The fact that you had your particular men, your authors, record what you wanted to be recorded. Jesus' disciples wrote the New Testament. I pray, Lord, that that would be precious to us. These are eyewitness accounts, first accounts, not hearsay, not so-and-so got it from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from so-and-so. These are eyewitness first accounts of what Jesus taught and how he believed and what he did in terms of behavior, all the things that make up our Christian faith. Bless these truths to our heart. Help us to be more like Christ each day. Amen.